So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. So, but the, the HR manager can go, oh, but I can get a better hitting, a better average by forcing everybody into this onboarding training, right? When my superstars didn't need it. And so what I did was I hired superstars and I wasted their time, right? And I signaled to my superstars, we're the kind of place where you're going to end up wasting time, right? So, so when you're interviewing the superstars, do they want to be there? Probably not, right? I can find somewhere else to go. But those average employees are like, cool, whatever, right? They're not, they're not worried about it. And so that's who you end up getting. And it's a function of the process that you put in place. So I, I tend to be very, very outcome oriented. That sort of, I work with a lot of engineers and coders. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Wade Irely. Wade, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So you're founder, CEO at Degree Insurance. We're going to be talking about that today. You started an airline. You spent some time at the Department of Defense. You've done a few interesting things here, my friend. Yeah, either you know, either I can do a few things well, or I can't hold a job. There, there's different lenses you could look at that through. So, sure. Well, we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about all these different things. But maybe to start with, tell us where you grew up and and how you think that helped you with what you've done with your career. Yeah, I, I grew up in Independence, Missouri. It's a suburb of Kansas City. I grew up close enough to Arrowhead Stadium. You could hear the Chiefs score from the dinner table. There's actually like a seven second delay between the crowd cheering and the you know, satellite image coming to your house. So so I'm naturally a big Chiefs, big Royals fan. You could uh, walk into Royals games after the seventh inning, they open the gates. And that's so we'd, I'm the oldest of eight. We'd kind of all traipse in at, after the seventh inning stretch and watch two and a half innings of baseball and be there for the end. I grew up, you know, my dad was an entrepreneur. And, and as a result, we had, you know, good years and lean years, right? And, and lived sort of the full, full experience. I went to, went to college on a Pell Grant with, you know, and, and now at a school an hour from home, I went to Central Missouri State. I was the, my dad went to college. He went to eight semesters of open enrollment at a local church college. My mom never went. And I was kind of young. So when I was real little, they moved me up a couple grades. And so I, we moved my senior year in, in Kansas City. So I, I didn't have a teacher that knew me or anybody. I graduated a semester. I went to one semester of the high school I graduated from. And so nobody knew me. I was kind of a year or two ahead of my sort of peers at church or another like community organizations, Boy Scouts or whatever. So I legitimately drove to a college an hour from home in August and asked how to sign up for a dorm. And I, I honestly didn't know you were supposed to apply. And so they, they're like, oh, it should be in your packet. You know, I'm like, well, I don't think it's in mine. And, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes later, they're like, dude, did, did you apply? I'm like, well, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. And they're like, oh, but that's not how this works. You, you had to do that like in March, man. 
And I, I got into college because a kind-hearted registrar took pity on me uh, and I had some halfway decent test scores. But yeah, so so that, I mean, I think that little anecdote probably tells a lot about how I grew up. Like we just, there was, there's just some stuff we just didn't know. Right? And like I said, you know, we had a few good years and a lot of lean years growing up and I was the first one out. I'm the oldest of eight. So I had to figure it out a little bit. Yeah. How do you think that prepared you for the different things you've done or it became an advantage to you? So I went to one high school for three years and it is the only school in my life to this day. I attended more than two years. So, so I moved a, like moved around a lot, even when we stayed in the same place, I was the, one of the first white kids bust into desegregate Kansas city schools in 1986 to send a taxi for me every day to come from the, you know, from the suburbs into the inner city. And I went to Lincoln prep, uh, Lincoln college is a, a historically black college in, in Missouri. So it's kind of a feeder school for that which is a, like a weird thing as a guy who looks like me, right? So I had a lot of experience sort of figuring stuff out, right? Not necessarily fitting in, but also I think learning to understand that everybody's experience is valuable when they're like different than you. They come from a different place, but like not, not just valuable, but as valuable as your experience. So I think even today, I tend to discount a long, long track record in a single industry kind of discount the value and in part, and that's probably just my bias because I haven't even, you know, in, even in my career, like you said, like White House Stafford, you know, Department of Defense, you know, the entrepreneur, like I, I, I tend to move, not hopefully not frenetically, but move around a bit. And, and I value that. I value the novelty. I value the sort of expansion that comes when you do new things. But, but yeah, I think, I think growing up as the oldest and growing up like where, where I went to different schools all the time sort of teaches you that you have to figure it out. And so even to this day, when I hire, I, I look for two traits. Yeah figure it out and get it done are the only two things I hire for. And we can talk about that later, but uh, yeah, I think, I think that that's definitely influential. Right. Yeah. So talk about transition from being a white house staffer to going to the department of defense. Oh, so, you know, I was in the first graduating class after 9-11, like that happened my senior year of college. And I had served a Latter-day Saint church mission in Moscow in the late nineties and post-Soviet Russia. And so I was a, you know, very fluent Russian speaker at the time. It's waned a little bit in the intervening years, but and there weren't a lot of those running around. That wasn't where the fight was at the time, but I figured, you know, maybe an intelligence agency or somebody could put me to work there and somebody more useful, you know, goes wherever the fight's going to be. And so I applied and I was hired conditional on a security clearance. My security clearance just took five and a half years. And so in, in 2007, I was, so I, I spent some time, you know, in DC, I, I worked three presidential campaigns and I, I was, I was on vice president Cheney's staff technically on the campaign and I'd travel ahead of him and manage his sort of press logistics and stuff on the road and kind of had this career. And then they, and then I went to graduate school and, and I was studying public policy and wanted to be, you know, good at it when I ultimately ended up in the administration somewhere or whatnot. And yeah. And, and as I was doing that, they called and said, Hey, do you still want to do this? And uh, your, your clearance just came through. And I said, yeah, I'd long forgotten about it, honestly. And so I said, sure. And uh, broke up with my foreign girlfriend who's Canadian and, and moved out to DC. So it was uh, moved back to DC where I had, I had been before, but yeah, and went into it. So the transition was a little unexpected only because I, I had frankly forgotten that this was even in process. And I had just lived and worked, you know, like I said, two years in Russia, and then I took a job in the Philippines and I, you know, spent some time in Serbia or London and done enough stuff and run into enough people that uh, the security clearance just took longer than average, probably. But if I'd grown up in a small town in Indiana and never left, security clearance would have been easier. Yeah. So what, what can you tell us about your time at DOD? Yeah, I worked for an intelligence agency. I was an operator. I uh, was on a transnational threats unit. So chased armed smugglers, human traffickers, narcotics agents globally. And then I deployed to Iraq. I came back in 2010. I had a baby 
this guy in uh, sitting behind me in 2010 and it was time to do something else for a living so i crossed out of the depending on what you know about intelligence there's kind of two two sides to the house there's the collection side the operators the guys that are and girls that are in the field and then there's the analysis side the guys with the big brains that take the information the other guys collect and and, and figure out what to do with it so I actually crossed out and I became an economist covering Europe and NATO for the uh, J2 and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs there at the Pentagon uh, while I started applying to business schools and figuring out you know, what else to do with my life. If this, this turned out to be a job, not a career, right? If I wasn't going to be there forever. And, and so I ultimately got into business school in Palo Alto and I was moving out to California when my little brother, who was a pilot and needed a job, called and said, what do we do? And, and I almost accidentally ended up in a startup incubator in LA. And so I, I ended up not going to Stanford, but, but building the business instead. And that was our first airline. Yeah. So tell us about that. So yeah, he, he you know, spent an awful lot of money going to Embry-Riddle learning to fly planes. And then when he graduated, there weren't a lot of jobs. And you know, he called me as his older brother and said, what do I do? And I said, I don't know, you, you've got a path. Like you knew what you wanted to do and you're going to do it for 30 years. And that's never been me. So I said, what's it going to take to keep you in the air? Right. Like it, it seems like so wasteful to walk away from this now. And and he says, he's a, you know, he's young and flippant. He says, I don't know, buy a plane, start an airline, which is a crazy thing to say. Like, I, I, like I said, I mentioned earlier, I was a Pell Grant kid, right? Like we, we come from money. And so the idea of buying a plane and starting an airline was nuts. And, uh, but I said, okay, I'll look into it. And I hung up the phone. And so uh, over a period of time, we, you know, we built a couple different models on how we could do things and read, you know, everything we could find on Herb Keller at Southwest or Dave Mealman at JetBlue or other guys who've done it this kind of thing. And uh, we ended up deciding that doing the same thing everyone else has done, right? And the same planes on the same routes is just not a great way to build a business. And so, but we realized that while 80% of people fly once in a year, right? They go to grandma's house for Thanksgiving or whatever it is. 20% are frequent flyers or about 35% of the spend. But inside that group, there's another group that the airlines ignore that are actually frequent commuters. They're not just frequent flyers. They're always flying between the same, same two cities, right? A, a, a venture investor in San Francisco who's got a bunch of portfolio companies in LA. He or she might be on a plane all the time, but they're always going San Francisco to LA. They're not, they're not flying out to Kansas City and Omaha and like wherever else, New York, whatever. So we built an airline specifically for those people. So we built the first airline that doesn't sell tickets. We sold subscriptions. So for two grand a month, you could fly all you want between our, our service cities. And that made it made us distinctive and changed a lot of things around the flight model. And, and we spent a lot of time with the FAA and convinced them it was a good idea and you know, heavily regulated space, which is something I've learned I love. But but yeah, so that, that's kind of sort of where, where we settled on that. We raised four and a quarter and then six and then seven. In, in six months, we'd raised three rounds of financing, probably all, almost 20 million, I'm going to guess. And this was 2012 when that was a big number. Had probably 82 employees, you know, 27 days after we launched or something. And so we, we, we went to some pretty significant hyper growth phase. We raised a lot of money and, and continued to raise money, very capital intensive industry. And there are no venture investors who are sitting around hoping you bring them an airline deal today, right? Like the, <laughs> the common, right? The common joke is how do you become a millionaire? Well, the fastest way is to start with a billion dollars and open an airline. And so we, you know, but we were able to tell a pretty compelling story and, and, you know, and we kind of just had a lightning in the bottle team. We got very, very lucky with, with, the elements that kind of came together. Yeah, it was great. And talk about the branding. I mean, I've, you know, as a diehard snowboarder in Canada who moved to Southern California so I could surf, I love I love that thing is called Surf Air. Talk yeah, to me so about the branding there. We, uh, we were originally called Plain Red, which was our homage to JetBlue, and, until we had a potential investor come in and they say, look, I love everything you're doing. I love the team. I love the business. I can never cut a check into an airline with red in the name. And we were kind of like taken aback, like, really? And he's like, red, caution, yield, money loss, stop, like fire, danger, bad. Everything about this is not great, <laughs> you know? 
And we said, oh, uh, okay, good point. Well, you have no brand early on. There's no brand equity built. There's no anything. So like, great, let's go through naming exercise. And we looked at well over a thousand names. I'm going to tell you, it's been several years. I'm going to tell you it was over 10,000 names. Like we, we went through this massive naming exercise. We hired an outside firm, like we just everything you could imagine. And ultimately just couldn't settle on anything. And one day I was sitting in the office with my founding team and I was riffing on an old cartoon. One of the characters was Kit Cloud Kicker. I forget the name of the cartoon, but he would like fly out of the back of an airplane and surf like on a surfboard through the sky. And, and I was like, he was surfing the skies and we were just sort of riffing on it, surfing the skies, surf air. And when we hit surf air, all five or six of us as founders went, I think that's it, right? Like that, that kind of, that's it. And everybody went, yeah, okay. And so it just kind of clicked and everybody was good with it and we moved on, you know? So there, it wasn't, it wasn't like a stroke of brilliance or anything. I don't think that, I think we could have called it, you know, purple. I, I don't think it would have mattered because your brand is something that uh, it's not overstated. It's really valuable, but you have to build that equity. It doesn't start with it. So like picking the right name is kind of, I don't know, there, there's some great, you know, stories of, you know, the, the name Google used to have isn't as good as the name Google has now, right? And it, like a lot of times you do need to go through a rebrand, but that's often not as expensive as you think. So I, I my candid opinion is, is it's a, a place entrepreneurs get trapped. They worry about naming it and they spend way more time on something that I consider of marginal import. Yeah. And so I, I have a decision framework as a CEO that I use a lot, which is, is, is this uh, question of marginal or material import. And if it's of marginal import, then I honestly don't care. And I'll give it to somebody else to do. And naming is probably falls in that category, right? It's, it's emotional and it matters in as much as like you're going to invest in it, but yeah. Yeah. So thinking about going into a, you know, a pretty well-known industry, what's advice for anybody who's looking at going into something that everybody knows how it works and doing something different? Yeah, that's interesting. So I'll back up a little bit and I'll go a little bit beyond industry into model. I think the, I, I have a theory that the, you know, the biggest, fastest growing companies uh, in the world tend to all be in heavily regulated space. The bright example that isn't that today is Zoom, right? Like pandemic sort of accelerated their growth probably 10 to 20 years, you know, in a year. But generally from Google to Airbnb to Uber to Theranos, even though it was fraud to like, they're all in super heavily regulated space. And there's good reason for that. We regulate the things that are going to, that impact our lives the most, right? Especially in those places that are most dangerous, which means they're most precious. And so big companies leverage their balance sheet. They're like a balloon that doesn't want to be popped, right? And so then they spend their money building an iron bulwark around that balloon to make sure nothing can pop it. And, uh, and it's really effective and it scares off tons of entrepreneurs, tons of would-be creative folks. Like just, man, it's terrifying. But what I've learned is if you can fight your way through the blowhole, right? There's, there's nothing but growth ahead of you, right? You get, all, you get the full advantage. And there's a little myth, I feel like, that a lot of entrepreneurs buy in. There's a super common phrase among successful entrepreneurs that if I'd have known how hard it was going to be when I started, I never would have started this business, right? You've undoubtedly heard that before. And I, I think that's true in like blue ocean. If you want to start a SaaS company today, like you can boop, website in an hour, I can have a SaaS company and, and, you know, I'll invest in the product and whatever else, but like functionally you can build that. There's, there's not a lot of regulation around it. So you feel like, gosh, this will be so much easier. And then when you build the business, you discover how hard it is with a regulated business, especially when it's heavily, heavily regulated, you see right up front how hard it's going to be. And you have an estimate for how long it's going to take. And so you can actually make smarter bets around whether or not it's going to justify itself. So the, that fight through the blowhole is an interesting thing for me. So I, I obviously did airlines before. Now I'm in insurance, came out of defense, all heavily regulated stuff. And I am not confident in a room that I sit in that I'm going to be the smartest guy sitting in that room. I think I'm a decently intelligent human, but like I tend to be around a lot of people who are you know operating on a different wavelength. They're just plain smarter than me. So if I had to go to a blue ocean business and try to outsmart the market and, and time things better and just like you get luck and you get good at it and you get all that, like that's hard for me to like reliably do. A heavily regulated business means there's a known path. 
how do you start an airline? Well, I walked into an FAA office in DC and said, how do I start an airline? Because there's a path, you've regulated it. We know what it is, right? Somebody somewhere knows. And they pat you on the head and they say, isn't that cute? You want to start an airline, uh, but it's really hard. And of course they say that, right? They've made a career decision to take a job where you're tenured after a year, like you're in the government. There's nothing wrong with that, but these are not risk tolerant people, right? So like, oh, like that's really hard. Like, like, okay, but what is it? What would the first step be? Well, you'd have to take this form and you have to fill it out seven times, send it to these 12 offices. And so I, I literally said, like, this one, can I have this one? Do I photocopy it? Do you want me to download it? But this is the form. And they're like, yeah, that's the form. You can have that, right? But there's a path. So while I don't know on day one what it takes to start an airline, I know the path is there and it's illuminated. I still have to discover it, right? I haven't traveled it before, right? So there's still learning that you're doing and you don't have like a perfect knowledge of what it will take. But I don't have to be smarter than anyone else. I just have to work harder. And, and that I'm much more confident in my ability to do, right? Like you can put your nose down and go to work and just like, like it's a checklist. It's regulated, right? There's 27 steps. What's step one? Do that. Now go to step two. And so a regulated business provides a fantastic opportunity. A, it scares off most other entrepreneurs. B, the opportunity is fantastic on the upside. A lot of your costs and risks are super front-loaded, which is great because you're going to find out with early dollars if it makes sense or not. You're not going to, in a heavily regulated space, you're not, it's hard to hit a single, right? It's a home run or a strikeout. You find out fast. It's like Bo Jackson at the plate, right? Like he's not hitting a ton of singles. And, and, uh, and that's great for me, right? I don't, if you want to build a lifestyle business, that's great. Then there's lots of ways to do that. And you can go hit singles and there's, there's nothing wrong with it. No judgment there. But for me, I was swinging for the fence. The, the, you know, to over belabor that analogy, the, the opportunity in heavily regulated space made sense. And I'm more confident in my ability to outwork than I am to outsmart. So it was a better fit for me personally. So, so that's, you asked the question about industry and that's more about model. So if I take that and then apply it to industry, like I said, I, I, uh, I think there's a lot of value in coming from outside of industry to having a different experience than the other folks doing things. So I, I don't put a lot of stock in like, I've been in insurance for 32 years, so I should start an insurance company. I honestly think 32 years in insurance means you're going to do it the exact same way that you've done it for 32 other years. And so it makes it hard for you to innovate. The best example I have of this is aviation, right? Pilots are like surgeons. They hold your life in their hands, right? So there's, there's some reputationally, like there's some ego around flying planes, right? And, uh, but a pilot, like a surgeon, is a checklist job. I do A, then B, then C, then D. I do it perfect every time and I never deviate. And I, but I know every, der- like every deviation of that checklist. If something happens, I go to the new checklist, right? And, and it's a technician and I'm perfect. And I'm, I, I hit like 100%, right? Like I do it right every time. Pilots get promoted, pilots run airlines. Well, and whether it was self-selection or whether it was training, that, that pilot is very good, like I said, at, at that flow. So when they get to run an airline, what do they do? They're really, really good at doing it the way it's always been done. And they're not great at, at doing it differently. So you look at the four or five guys since Howard Hughes who've innovated in, in, in aviation. You've got Herb Keller at Southwest and Dave Mealman, Jeff Blue and Richard Branson and Rich Santulli started NetJets, right? Whole different flying model, right? All of those guys share a couple things in common. None of them are pilots or started as pilots. Richard is, is now, but n- none of them are pilots and all of them have ADD. These are <laughs> inherently folks who flip switches for like all the time, right? It's a behavior you don't want in the cockpit. You don't want to be going 30,000 feet and have a guy go, what does this do? Click, right? Like that's not the moment. So, so they all came from outside the industry. Like Herb Keller was an attorney, right? Like Dave Nealon ran a travel company. It's, it's adjacent, right? But he's not running flights and like... It's, it's different. So I think that's a superpower coming in. So when we want to do something different than anybody else, I actually think it's an advantage not to be, you, you need pilots around. You need to understand what it means to fly and operate, maintain an aircraft, but they, they don't need to be making the strategic decisions about how we do things because they'll do things the way they've always been done. And you need people who ask, but why do we do it that way? Right. And it's a different question. It's one you may be asked in college, right? You're going through a course and you're taking a class and they tell you like, here's the formula in your math class. Here's how you calculate it. It's the only nine times out of 10, you just go, okay. And then you apply that formula. And that's a fine mindset. But there was one kid in that class who goes, why? Why is that the formula? 
Like show me the proof. That kid becomes a mathematician, right? And so I think coming from a different industry lets you be that guy who says, why? I know we do it that way all the time, but why? And so, so that's valuable. So when we came to insurance, so I, I had no fear like coming then into insurance, another super heavily regulated uh, industry. In fact, the regulatory bodies are wildly different. In aviation, you've got the FAA. It doesn't cross state lines. So because of our constitution, the insurance is regulated by each of the 50 states separately. I have 50 different regulators, right? There's not one, you know, FAA, one federal regulator that you're going to go to and work it out with. Um, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that. Let's, well, let's, let's talk about degree. So what's your, what's your elevator pitch? degree insurance we guarantee you make more money when you graduate college so higher ed is the largest uninsured investment market in the world it's the only place you're going to counsel somebody you love to borrow 10 or 20 times their net worth and make a single investment with it and then just hope it pays off and and higher ed is an investment right you're going to borrow on average 35 grand now and you're going to spend four years in college or five on average now and you're what you're trying to buy is some increased earnings in the future and it works we know it works and a college degree will give you a million dollars in increased lifetime earnings right It, it works but it works in aggregate it works on average. It works at the middle of the, you know, middle of that bell curve. And so, but what happens on the fringes is really, really important. Who doesn't it work for? When and why? And something that works that reliably. I'll give you an example. If it were a stock in the stock market, it would be the most consistent performer in history and outperform the market at 2x. Right? It's the single best thing you can do with your money. So, so that's why the federal government's been able to get away with financing higher ed the way we have for so long, right? And make this bet with, a, with essentially no insurance on it. It is the only place you would do that. And, and there's some other toxic pieces about it, right? It's non-dischargeable debt. You can't get rid of it in a, in a bankruptcy. So this is like mob money. It will follow you forever. You are going to pay this back, right? We tell you it's the first legal contract you can sign, right? You're 18 years old. Congratulations. Indebt yourself, right? And, and we tell you to take out as much money as you can, by which we usually mean go to the best school you can, right? That's what we tell you. But the effect is borrow as much as you can, right? And uh, and then we stroke your ego. Hey, it's you're making a bet on you. And it, you know, it's, it's great. And it is like all those things are true, but they also make sort of a top toxic amalgam of opportunity for you to get royally hosed. $35,000 a year when you graduate is the average. You'll pay it back over 21 years. That means it's $181 a month average payment. The average college graduate does not have a problem paying back their student loans. In fact, the majority of people who default on the $1.7 trillion in student loans outstanding in the United States right now borrowed less than 10 grand, but never graduated, right? They didn't get the lift. They just got, we, we just made those families poorer, right? They're just, they just have to service debt now and, they, and their job opportunities are the same they were if they had never gone. So, so what we set out to do was build a product that would increase graduation rates because one of the terrifying stats, I'm going to give you two, the 21 years to pay back, it seems like a fine number until you realize that's a multi-generational impact. Now You're still servicing those loans when your daughter gets into state college and says, dad, I got in, like, can you co-sign my loans? And you're going, oh crap, I'm still, I'm still paying mine, right? That's different. That's never been that way before. But the other one is that four in 10 kids who go to college this year won't finish. And that's the Department of Ed stat, right? So 40% of people won't finish. That means we made those families poorer, not wealthier. It's actually worse than that. When you include community colleges and you include online colleges and for-profit colleges, it's six and 10. Higher ed as a whole will make more families poor than wealthy in the United States. That's terrifying. <laughs> that's just like, shouldn't be. So the, the, and the problem is in, in the folks that don't graduate, we spent so much time, access was so important. such an important part of the American dream and the ladder to sort of move up your economic position in life is to get that, that education that we told generations and generations of Americans going to college is the key, but that's functionally false. Graduating college is the key. And it seems like a subtle nuance, but it's really important, right? And so if you're not gonna graduate, you would have been better off not to have gone. And, and that's, so, so we set up to sort of say, look, here's a risk, a super reliable bet that you can make and what makes it not work and how do we fix it, right? And the thing that determines, so 
So in the worst scenario is you went and you didn't graduate. So again, we build something that can increase graduations. But what if you if you graduated and it didn't work for you? How often does that happen? That does happen, right? There's always an error rate in any process. And, and the answer is that nine out of 10 times you go, it works. And one in 10, it doesn't. Because the thing that determines whether or not your college degree pays off is none of the things you've been taught or think. It's not where you went to school or what you studied or who studied under the grades you got or where you published. Like all those things are marginally important. But the thing that makes the material difference, the thing that determines whether or not it pays off is the state of the macro economy in the year you graduate. Full stop. If you start college in 2005, your junior year, Apple unveils the iPhone, unlocks all this economic potential, right? Your senior year, Lehman Brothers is bust and there's no jobs. Either one of those things is more influential on what you earn when you graduate than anything you did in college. So, so one way you can think about it is a roulette wheel where nine out of 10 spaces are the same color, right? So should you spend that wheel every single time, borrow as much money as you can and spin the wheel. And that's what we've told people for a long time, right? Like go to the best school you can and spin the wheel. And uh, the wealthy effectively self-insure. If it, what if it landed on black? Everything else is red. You put it on red and it came up black. What do you do? You graduate in 09. If you're wealthy, you go to grad school. You hide from the economy in a socially acceptable way, right? You, and, and re-emerge into a different spot. You double down. That's the right play when nine out of 10 things are going to hit. You borrow as much money again and you double down. First generation students, first generation Americans, underrepresented minority, otherwise poor, right? Like they don't have that option. Quite often, they just have to go to work. And so they anchor their market rate at a low point. The economy rebounds. They got a two to 3% annual wage increase. Far too often, the guy who graduated the year after you got hired at a higher rate than you got plus your, plus your raise. Right? He makes more money than you and you've got a year in the job already. Right. So graduating in the wrong year is the worst thing. So what we do is we say, all right, we'll we'll build a hedge for that. We'll guarantee your earnings in the five years after you graduate. So if you, you graduate, whatever we told you, if it was, you know, we sell it to a college. So let's say I'm sitting in Utah right now. We sell it to the University of Utah and it would be uh, twenty five hundred bucks a student one time. The university would buy that. It would cover the incoming freshman class. Well, what happened is those those kids can now change their majors as often as they want, but they begin to understand what it means. Today, you know, like if I leave STEM and I go to non STEM, maybe it's you know maybe I'm not going to make as much, but you don't know how much. You don't know the order of magnitude. What I can tell you is, if you graduate in engineering, you'll make fifty six grand a year. And I'm making up numbers here, for example, but like fifty six grand. And if it's business, it's forty four. And if it's econ, it's forty two. If it's English, it's thirty eight. If it's dance, it's thirty one. Whatever the the rubric is for the school, so you can make those decisions now. And it doesn't mean you have to chase more salary. Maybe, hey, if you switched out to econ, you're going to make three grand a year less, but you'll be happier, right? So you can make those decisions. Kids get to make the right decisions for them. And then they graduate. And then for five years, they send us their tax returns. It's an objective, verifiable third-party document. You're filling it out anyway, but we know what you made. And you know what you made. We can both agree that's what you made. And if you didn't earn what we said you would, check for the difference. We make you whole, right? So everyone gets to start their career at the same level playing field. And if you didn't, for some reason, we're going to catch you up. And if you want to use that money to pay off your student loans or to go to graduate school or because it didn't work for you, you've taken out all these like other, you know, loans, other places, whatever you need to do with it, you can do with it, but you get a chance to reset. That's not the elevator pitch. That was a little longer, but that, that's essentially what we do. I love it. So you guys are just coming up on year four now. Is that right? Yeah. So we started this July of 17. So I guess we're what July of 20 was three years, so three and a half in. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, well, I, I want to go back a little bit. It's fun to see like, again, all these cool things that you've done in different arenas. I want to, I'm, I'm interested uh, in your impressions, this like, this intensity that you've got and the curiosity and confidence in these things. How do you think that affected your ability to achieve mastery in, you know, your human intelligence work, for instance? So I have two traits that have served me well, both in intelligence and in, you know, building businesses later. 
and they they come with you know the corresponding sort of failings as well. I am irrationally confident. I'm the guy who finished the Hunger Games and I'm like, I could have written that, right? Like the writing wasn't incredible. And my wife, who's like in English, like she teaches English at UConn at the time, she's like, what? You couldn't have written that, you know? But I'm like, I could have done that. Like I'm just sort of irrationally confident. And then the other piece is I'm blindly optimistic, genuinely believe it'll work out for the best. I see the best in everybody around. People that have screwed me over before, my wife's like, stop working with that guy. And I'm like, well, he probably didn't mean it, you know? Like that combination of... <laughs> yeah. Combination of blind optimism and irrational sort of confidence is really, really good in an entrepreneur, right? It makes you like, if somebody's like trying to figure out who to invest in, the guy who's like confident it's going to work and like can see the big pick, like can get, that's kind of what you're looking for in that, in that, that early stage, right? And it also lets me take risks that other people won't. I end up defining risks differently, but like, you know, I'll, I'll do things other people won't because they, their risk tolerance won't allow them to do that. But I'm like, oh, it's going to work out. It'll be fine. Part of that is, candidly, I know how to be poor. I've been poor. It's not terrifying, right? Uh, it's not as nice as not being poor, right? But like, if I had to be poor, I know how to do that. And I know, like I said, I know I prefer not being poor, but but it's not as scary as, you know, people who like, they're locked into something, they're on a career path, I'm in banking, and I'll never be poor doing this, right? But they hate their job and their life every day. Like, I, I can't do that. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at just hammering that same nail every day. Right. Like I, that's, that's not, that's the you know, corresponding failing to those other traits is that I always think there's something better and I always be doing more and, and, and contributing more. So, so I think that helped a lot in both spheres. Another one though, that, that I learned when I was at the department of defense or, or was reinforced to me, I had an econ background. So I understood sort of signaling market signaling and other things, but understanding it at a human level, which was something that they train you through is, is helpful, right? Like reading a boardroom, understanding that the guy pointing his feet towards the door is not into whatever you're talking about right now. Like gives you a cue to know to re-engage this person, right? So you, you can you can run a meeting a little bit better as a result, but you also know how to relate to people. I mean, you, you get trained in how to build a relationship of trust with somebody in, in a very short period of time. And those are the things you need in order to succeed at a business, right? You need buy-in, you need people to think you've got it. You need to be able to exude that confidence, but do it in a way that's not arrogant and not, you know, I'll avoid using some of those words, but like it comes across the right way, but I'm better at it for having worked at the DOD, right? Yeah, it's interesting. This morning, I brought a former FBI counter intel guy and we taught a sales team that does like new home building, right? And sure. and we were talking about just these different, like the different ideas of like what actually, because he was, you know, counter intel, he's trying to get, for listeners who aren't aware, they're trying to get foreign spies to commit treason and, and help America, right? And if you get caught, like this could very well mean your death and potentially the death of your family. Like this is this is a big sale when it comes to sales. Right? Yeah, and, and I don't know how you feel about this, but he felt like one of the largest things that made the difference was not just throwing gazillions of dollars at people, but like helping them feel important, helping them feel good about themselves. He felt like was yeah. one of the most successful things in his like two and a half decade career. If you studied every single trader in American history right? It's about making them feel good about themselves, whether they were, you know, giving atomic secrets to the Israelis or, you know, Aldrich James and the Soviets or, you know, all the way back to Benedict Arnold, right? You feel slighted somewhere, you feel underappreciated, somebody else makes you feel valuable and then says, hey, here's how you could be really valuable, right? And plays that. That, that's sort of, that's a truth, but you see that in management too. People don't leave because of salary, right? Nine, nine times out of 10, it's not money that drives it. Money sometimes is a reflection of what a company thinks of you, right? So, so, so it gets a little convoluted there, but generally if the team is good, you'll be happy at work. That's eight hours a day, right? 
and uh, and that team and for a team to be good, they got to respect each other, and everybody feels like they're valued and validated and participating and contributing. You want to be part of something. You don't want to you don't want to sit there, you know, on your deathbed and feel like you never contributed to anything. And so, even if what you're, even if the thing you do is make the world's best saddles for horses, right? Like, you know, whatever it is, there's a reason you want to define it as the world's best. You don't want to look back and say, I made the world's most average saddles. And yet, statistically, that's what most saddle makers make, right? It's average, it's the middle. So, so you're constantly figuring out how to contribute in a way that feels meaningful. I think most midlife crises are about that, right? Like, how do you find meaning now? You kind of like got through the early part and you've, you're 10 years into your career and you're like, okay, all the things I thought were going to matter mattered to this point. And now like what's next? I have a raft of buddies who've been successful in their professional careers. And then they take up like my, my brother-in-law has done like eight Ironmans, right? He's an attorney at Apple. He's a highly successful guy. Why is he running Ironmans? And the answer is like something I'm so used to pushing and driving. Now I'm in a great job. I love what I do, but like, what do I achieve? What's next? And the Ironman can be that, right? Or, you know, why do middle-aged men start taking up cycling? You know, like these, these things tend to be because it's, I still need to achieve something. And, and it, it gives you an emotional sort of a mental support in ways that other things don't, right? And that's often it what we're looking interesting. for. Yeah, it's interesting how much progression can be linked to happiness, isn't it? Yeah. Happiness is the only intrinsic value. It's the only thing you seek for itself, right? Everything else is an input to greater or lesser happiness. And, you know, all major religions, whether like life is suffering and this is what it is, is about how you deal with that suffering to be happy, right? Or whether like there's a savior who came to the earth and like, this is how you're going to get happy is here and later, right? In an afterlife. Like, it's, it's about finding that happiness. And that is, I think, the quintessential human struggle. So as a business, you're building a culture. How do you, how do you value and validate those employees? Right? So uh, I'll give you a silly example. When we run in Surfair, we have concierges that is what we call them, but like they, they greet you and they help you get on and off the plane, right? The, the person who determines the quality of your experience in an airline is not the pilot who gets to wreck a plane or not, right? It's not the steward who spills a drink or doesn't. It's the $10 an hour ticket counter guy or girl who gets to tell you your flight was delayed. That's who determines whether or not you liked your flight experience, right? And so at Surf, we spent a lot of time and energy training those folks. We Their entire job description was to make the customer experience right. Well, stop. That's it. Whatever that takes, that's your job. Because I don't have like a $12 margin on this ticket to make you happy. So when we delayed the flight, I can give you a $10 coupon at a, you know, the TGI Fridays here in the airport. And then I'm losing money on you. So I'm not going to do anything else. That's not it. It's a, it's not a transactional model. Surf Air is a subscription model. It's, it's a relational model. Your like sort of value as a customer back to the company is across every flight you'll ever take for as long as you get your lifetime value is just much greater than that. So we had, uh, I brought a guy in who'd been at NetJets, right? Like an elite, high level, you know, 350 grand to join, $30,000 a month membership type thing. And he, he was a former pilot. He, he flew Air Force One. And he was flying at NetJets. And he told the story about flying for NetJets. And he said he was on a plane and they had three, what he called blue haired old women. And they were flying out of Ohio into New York City. And he said, he started hearing the click, click as all the little drawers on the plane are getting opened. And so he kind of turns around. like, can I help you ladies with something? You know, and they're, they're like he said, these blue haired old women. He's like, is there any chocolate on the plane? And he goes, you know what? We had like Red Hots and Swedish fish and like stuff, but we didn't have anything chocolate. I'm, like, I'm sorry. You know, we don't. And I'm like, that's all right. And 40 minutes later, they're landing the plane, right? What he did though, in that interim was he called the FBO, which is kind of like the, it's like a hotel lobby with a gas station on it, that plane planned out. Yeah. 
He called the FBO and said, hey, do you guys have a vending machine? They're like, yeah. He's like, great. Buy three of everything that has chocolate in it and meet me plane side. Okay. So they land, they pull the ladder, like the, you know, the stairs come out of the plane. Like he walks down and those, when the three women get off the plane, he's holding armfuls of chocolate. Right. And it's like, it's not great. Chocolate. It's like peanut M&Ms and, you know, like Hershey bars. Yeah. It's cheap chocolate. Right. And they laugh, excited, and they all take a little chocolate and then they go on their way. Those three women sold four memberships to NetJets in the next six months on that story. Like, look how much they care about us. He bought $21 in vending machine chocolate, right? Like making someone feel good doesn't have to be about the dollar amount. It had to be about them feeling heard, right? Like you heard me and you solved my problem and you cared. And that was worth a half a million bucks to people to buy into an aircraft. Like what a great story. So we we did that. We sent our, our folks through Ritz-Carlton training and Chick-fil-A training. And like, that was the training. So we've got a you know, concierge looks and sees, and it's a, it's a man and a woman getting on a plane. So he greets them and he realizes it's a daddy daughter trip. It's a Sunday in June. And he sees that it's a round trip. They're going down to LA and they're coming back. And it dawns on him two things. He, as he tells the story, it's like two things dawn on me. One, oh no, it's Father's Day. I need to call my dad. And two, this is a daddy daughter <laughs> Father's Day trip in June, right? Like down to, down to LA for the day. So as they're getting on the plane, they're climbing up the stairs. He stops them and takes a photo on his iPhone. While they're gone, he drives over to a Costco, blows it up, puts it in a $20 frame. When they land, he gives them a memento of their daddy daughter trip to LA, right? They will never leave Surf Air over a $22 like memento, right? Another couple gets on a plane and she's carrying flowers. You know, why does the guy give her flowers? Oh, can go I, ahead. Can I pause you on that story? Because I yeah. feel like the principle there that is magic is unexpectedness and personalization. Do you mean like if they knew when we get off our surf airplane, our surf air trip, we'll have our photo waiting? It doesn't. It doesn't have that no. feeling, does it? it it's no, when you're on a Disney roller coaster, and you know there's a picture at the end. It, it's not special, right? But a surprise that made it special, and it made it caring. It made it. It made it matter. And and a personalized surprise. I mean, how do you get better than that, right? Yeah, like Delta's never going to do that. Like, what's Delta going to do? Like, they can't. They can't do that, right? I started to tell. We, we had a guy and a girl get on a plane, and she's carrying flowers, and so you, you give her flowers, so the attention goes to her, right? And like, oh, beautiful flowers. Why'd you get flowers? It's our anniversary. We're going up to San Francisco for the weekend, right? They're flying out of Santa Barbara. Like, oh, that's great. They get on the plane. There's an hour until they land in San Francisco. He calls the receiving concierge and goes, hey man, you've got an anniversary couple on the flight. He goes, got it. Hangs up the phone, runs out, buys a bottle of champagne, puts a surf air ribbon around it, right? When they land, says, hey, happy anniversary from surf air. The guy looks like a million bucks. He looks like he arranged it. You know what I mean? Like he's just ear to ear grinning and she feels great. So he'll never leave surf air over like probably, and I don't, I don't drink, so I don't know anything about it, but probably an $11 bottle of champagne or something. Like it wasn't like it was special, you know, it was only special because they didn't expect it, like you said, and it was personal to them in the moment. So we used to use those stories in our training of other folks because that, that was the job, right? The job is make the experience right. It doesn't always take a lot of money, uh, but yeah. it could, right? If we had to cancel a plane and you chartered a flight, you know, a private plane somewhere to get our people there, it would have been okay. We would have talked about maybe there's other ways to do it, but I didn't give them like, here's your $50 budget and we only trust you to do this. These were our $10 an hour, you know, frontline folks. They had, they were completely empowered to do whatever it took to make the customer's experience right, which meant we treated them like grownups, right? We trusted them to make real decisions. They could spend the company's money. And, and we trained them well, and we knew what they were focused on. They bought in. There are still people that are working there today, eight years later, who I trained personally when we got there, right? Who have loved it, and they've made a career out of being at Surfair. And it is because they feel valued and validated, and they get to contribute in really meaningful ways. Because not only did that guy, you know, that get, gets the champagne smile ear to ear, the concierge feels like a million bucks, right? I did that. I made them smile, and I, and like, and I was completely empowered. And they trust the company trusted me to do it. I, I often say that process is the language that a business speaks. So 
when you require continuing education credits, what it means is, A, you have a flaw in your hiring process, that you're hiring someone who you don't trust to actually care about their career enough to invest in them, right? And B, it says to the employee, I don't think you're smart enough to figure out you need to do this. So we're going to require it, right? It's a silly thing, but that's what it tells you. When, you know, what, what's your onboarding process and your hiring process? What's the first thing they see, right? Are they filling out 27 forms or are they talking to a human? Because both, because not that either one's better or worse, but they're both going to tell me a lot about the company, right? The process is really the language that the, the business speaks and businesses put a lot of processes in place when they feel like they're failing at certain things, right? So every, every process is a failure rate. You're not going to hire hundred percent all-stars. So if you've got a 5% failure rate, what do you do? You either move on from those all-stars or from those folks who aren't all-stars or you train them up, right? So, but the, the HR manager can go, oh, but I can get a better hitting, a better average by forcing everybody into this onboarding training, right? When my superstars didn't need it. And so what I did was I hired superstars and I wasted their time, right? And I signaled to my superstars, we're the kind of place where you're going to end up wasting time, right? So, so when you're interviewing the superstars, do they want to be there? Probably not, right? I can find somewhere else to go. But those average employees are like, cool, whatever, right? They're not, they're not worried about it. And so that's who you end up getting. And it's a function of the process that you put in place. So I, I tend to be very, very outcome oriented. That's sort of, I work with a lot of engineers and coders and they'll do like a daily, daily stand-up meeting or a weekly scrum or, you know, whatever it is. I do not want to be in a meeting where you tell me these were the 12 phone calls I made this week. And here's, we're getting closer on the, like, I don't care about any of it. I, like, did you do it or didn't? Like, is it done or not? That's all that matters to me was the outcome. And I don't need to know any of it. If I needed to know the middle of it, like I would have done it myself. Right. I want you to figure that out. So it, it's yeah. uh, it's a harder thing to scale, but you can only scale and you can only scale it with culture. That's interesting. It it leads me to a lot of questions. And I know we've only got so much time left. So actually, I want to I want to go a different direction. When you think about the insurance world and you guys are doing something cool, when you think about what makes a business like yours more sellable or less sellable, what do you feel like those levers are? Do you solve a problem? Is the problem acutely felt? So you solve a, a problem that everybody has, but that's like erasers fall off the top of my pencils. Like it's going to be hard to build a business. Like nobody cares. So is, is the problem acutely felt for a broad enough swath of people and can you fix it? Right? Is it solved? Is it made better? Like th- those are kind of the questions I ask. So I, I told you that sort of at the beginning of this that I have a material versus marginal impact sort of framework that I use a lot, um, which is one of the things that makes me outcomes oriented. An outcome is a materially improved, you know, improved thing. A process like I made three phone calls mar- of marginal value at best, right? So I don't, I don't care. I don't want to see it. When I think about sort of insurance or how you address a problem, are you are you making something materially better? Is it improving something in enough? Because because to me that that you know how do you measure material? Well, are you willing to pay for it? Right, that that's one measure of it. Like, are are you willing? To pay? And you'll pay for lots of things. You'll pay for novelty. You'll pay for like nuance. Value. You'll, you'll, yeah, you'll pay for a lot of marginal things. But functionally, paying for it is a good benchmark for like, is this delivering some value to somebody? which I think is what most VCs mean when they talk about finding product market fit. It means you've identified that the problem you had was big enough people are willing to pay for it for the solution you're yeah. providing. Right. And, and what about the whole company? When you think about what makes us more attractive to a financial strategic buyer, what makes us mm. more attractive to the market to eventually IPO, what, what makes an insurance company uh, more, a more attractive purchase for, for a private equity fund or somebody? So I built an airline before. Those only scale with people, right? You got to maintain aircraft. You got to fly aircraft. Like those, those scale with people. You get really good multiples in like SaaS businesses where it's software with once you've built it, you've eaten the upfront cost and then it's sort of marginally more expensive, but you're getting, you know, linear growth. 
in insurance, I, this may be apocryphal. I don't know this. So I'll, I'll tell the anecdote. But the question that was posited to me was, do you know how many employees Berkshire Hathaway has? I said, no. I said, 17. It, it doesn't scale with people, right? They Now, they own lots of businesses that have lots of employees, you know, Dairy Queen, like lots of other stuff. But they but the insurance business itself doesn't, doesn't necessarily need people to scale, especially when we're not selling direct to consumer, right? We sell to colleges. So there's 5,000 in the country. That's our total customer set. We know who they are. That's an identifiable, easy customer set. It's an institutional sale. It'll take you a long time to get into a school. But once you get in, if, if you're if you're a state college somewhere and you say, hey, class of 2026, we guarantee you'll make more money when you go here. Can you afford to not give that to the class of 2027? Right? Do, do you no longer sort of stand behind the quality of the education? Like, why'd you take it away from me? Right? So it's probably a forever sale. So that sort of SaaS-like multiple that you're going to get probably makes sense. Again, it's, it's an institutional sale. It's going to take a long time to close that deal. But once you do, it's probably a forever sale. It's probably there for a long, long time. It's built into a budget that recurs, right? So that's important. There are some other sort of features of the business. It's a massive competitive advantage early on. And so the the early movers are going to get a a big win. Later, it becomes more of table stakes, right? If everybody else has it, you have to. Are you going to get an advantage from it? No, now you're you're just like catching up to everybody else. So that's, that's actually not a bad business, like a bad model for a business to be in is like, we'll give you a massive competitive advantage. And then it becomes something everybody does. Yeah. So when you think about, you know, growing this thing, maybe this will be a cash cow for you ever. Maybe you'll sell it. Maybe you'll take it public, whatever. But, sure. but when you think about if you were going to try and get the highest multiple for it, what are the levers? Like you've got your model, you've got your value prop. What are the levers to make this the most attractive to get the biggest multiple for it? If you do want to sell it? Yeah. I hate to give this super generic answer, but it's, it's, can you like, can this product exist? And then can you sell it? It's just sales. And, and I, I talked to a lot of startup founders about this because it's true in any industry. They're like, well, our plan is to do this for three years and then get acquired. And I'm like, okay, but you don't control the acquiring part. The, your best path is to build a profitable business. And then every option's in front of you. You can be acquired. You could go public. You could just let it be a cash. Like you said, like every path is there. The answer is go make money, right? And that comes with sales. So if you can sell, you're going to be fine. And so that raises the floor. Now, the question you ask is, how do we lever up the multiple to raise the ceiling, right? But the best way to raise the ceiling is so how high the floor is, is to make someone confident. When you're going to make a bet on somebody and you're going to buy something at a 5X or a 10X multiple, what I'm saying is it's going to take me five to 10 years to like be confident that I clear that hurdle. Well, the more sales I have now and the faster you can ramp that sales, the more you can show, the more confidence you can give them in that path and in that trajectory. So it's not just, you know, sales solves all wounds, but sales is the right answer. It's just not. Especially profitable I, I, sales. Like in, yeah, if you're in like, startup plan, profitable sales. It's yeah, pretty, actually pretty awesome, make money. Right? right? Yeah. Like just go ahead and make money. You'll, revolutionary. You'll revolutionary yeah. idea of people actually make money, huh? Yeah. Well, the idea of like, I'm going to build it and then I'll flip it in three years. We'll still be losing money. We've lived on VC dollars. And then, then we have to find that multiple because that's the only way out. That's just terrifying. I don't, I don't control too many of those variables. Sales, that we can handle. When you think about sales, um, you think about sales training, when you think about sales systems, when you, what, what do you feel like is, is your philosophy when it comes to raising that floor? Empower people to be grownups, like hire big kids, let them be big kids, right? So I, I don't put a lot of process in place. You share best practices, what's working. So today, right now, we're selling a product for the very first time. We spent three years at the company now, and we were licensed in August in Illinois. So until we were licensed, we couldn't have sales conversations. So we're just having them, right? And I, uh, I interviewed a guy today for a sales role. And I, I said to him directly, like, I don't know what works. We haven't sold this yet. I can't tell you how the process will work and who needs to be in the room and the rest of it. So it's, I always, I said earlier, I hire for get it done and figure it out. Those are the traits I look for. 
And, and some people like they want to sit in a desk. If you, if you get a job at Bank of America, the guy standing over your shoulder was in your seat 18 months ago and you can turn around and say, what do I do now? There's nothing wrong with being that guy, right? That's a fine path. But if you're that guy, you're not going to, it's not going to work here because I, I don't have, I can't answer that question for you. Not just that I don't or won't. I, I honestly don't know how to sell this. So, so we're going to have to figure it out. And what works for you and what works for me might be different, but what works for you, I'm going to learn from. So there's a lot of communication, a lot of sharing, a lot of figuring that out together. And what does that look like at a more granular practical level? Is it, is it a weekly we're in the same room? Is it a, like, what does that look like on a, in a schedule basis? Yeah. My team's all remote now. I certainly with COVID that's certainly more normal, but my, my co-founders in Chicago, I live in Lehigh, Utah guy. We interviewed today is in Massachusetts and he would stay there. We tend, we try to get together in the same room once every four to six weeks because there's a different cadence when you're all together, but it's actually a nice burst cadence where you're, you got together and there's four days of like maximum productivity, but the stuff you're knocking out when you're together is uh, the stuff that sort of like was getting behind when you were apart. And then when you're apart, you're knocking down, you know, those things are happening. So so that sort of burst and then and then back to what you do is actually quite good for us and, and works well. I've had other teams where that might not have worked the same way. And so it, it, I don't know that there's a single sort of unifying method. What I will say is that lots of companies make the mistake of promoting individuals. So you take a high performing team at Google and, and like the AI team working on, you know, whatever. And you're like, all right, this is our super AI guy. Let's put him on this new AI project. And this is our super like autonomous vehicles guy. Let's put him on this other AV, you know, product. And they do that and they take a super high performing team and they split it up into all the superstars. And then the overall performance falls across that group. Instead, you'd be better that the, the team dynamic, the trust, the validation, all of that stuff we've sort of talked about, you promote that whole team. It's easier to learn the new industry than it is to build that team chemistry. So you promote a high performing team into a new task and they'll continue to be a high performing team. So I, th- I think if anything, that would be the takeaway is like build that high performing team, figure out what those key components are for your team and what works for it. And then let that team continue to shine. Right. And, and you, you can introduce new elements, but it, it's it's dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as breaking this team up. Right. And so if you need a new thing and these guys are all engaged, you might want to try to build a new high performing team. Right. That's probably a better strategy. So so that's that's how I think about it. So what works here and works for us, literally other teams I've had that I thought were super high performing that went well, this wouldn't work for and we, we did sort of weekly meetings and we, you know, we did sort of other things, but right now this dynamic for us is really great. Yeah. Well, you know, you talked about Chick-fil-A training, Ritz-Carlton ch- training for customer service. Are there any go-tos for you when it comes to sales training or sales books? Oh man. What I find is that people who have sold for a living have been through all of it, right? You're not going to bring something new to them they haven't seen before. And I'm not a sales guy for a living. They probably know more about sales than me. So when I train, when, when I'm going to train a sales function, I'm usually not training you how to sell. I'm usually training you on our product, right? Because we're going to hire somebody who already knows it. There are a lot of skills that you can buy, right? Uh, I can buy an accountant. I, like that's a skill set. And I need the world's number one accountant. I can aim at the center of the median, right? Like an average accountant is probably going to do everything I need them to do. So I can hire for, so, so that is the base to like get the interviews. Like, are they an accountant? Can they be an accountant? Yes. The interview for me is actually like, do they fit with the team? How are they going to coalesce? Like that, that's the stuff now that makes them stand out. So, so a training is going to be less about the core function because I'm already going to believe you can do that. Then, then it's going to be about like, okay, like how do you fit? And that we can train that we can talk through. And so we spend a lot of time talking about various personalities. I've got ADD, what it's like to work with a guy who talks all day, right. Or who, who isn't going to call you on an accountability phone call and be like, how's it going? And doesn't want to chat about it, right? Like what I want to hear is, did it happen? Luckily, I've got like really great co-founders and we've been together for, you know, my one founder slash mentor, I've been doing stuff with him starting 19 years ago. The other one's my brother and we've been doing this together starting 15 years ago. 
our fourth one, you know, Lindsay, right. Who, who introduced us, you know, solid gold. Right. But she right. started running a charity for the three of us 10 years ago. I started working with her 18 years ago. Like we, we like Lindsay says, well, we know the worst things about each other and we still want to do business together. Right. Yeah. So we've got yeah. a great team, but it is a problem for me that, and I'm just so glad that I have them to nurture mm-hmm. staff and teams and people, but like, I, I'm actually interested in some advice of like, I am like, I'm so results oriented that it's kind of a problem, you know? And I've, I've like, yeah. I actually like took time out of finance and came and worked for the Arbinger Institute in Utah to like, to like intentionally try and build more skills to like connect with people, be more present. And what's funny is like, people would describe me as a very social person. I've done 500 interviews of this show, 500 episodes, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I'm a highly social person, but like, I'm also kind of like a little bit out for blood. Like I, I do consider myself a lifelong salesperson, even you know, even yeah. when I was CEO of my own private equity fund, I still just top salesperson, right? But I know that people need to be cared for, and I am just so outcome focused. I know I'm just like throwing up on you here. Any, any, just like no, it's a great advice question. for me though. So I will tell you, at each one of my businesses, one of my co-founders has been an attorney. attorney attorneys are the antithesis of what I'm. So they have a skill set, but beyond that, they're trained to look for what's wrong. They are almost by training pessimists, right? Their job is to find what's wrong and then hopefully fix it. But far too few of them are as creative as you'd like them to be. Most of them are happy to say no. I don't think there's a good no. I think there's like a not the way you thought, but here's the yes is the right answer for me, right? And finding those attorneys are harder. But every time I've started a business, I've had an attorney for a co-founder. I've also had, so I know I'm not process oriented, but process has its place. Like I said, process is the language that a business speaks. If we never set processes, right? We're mute as a business. That's not going to work. And so who's going to build those processes? I'll have input, right? And usually I'm cutting out ones I think are superfluous, right? But somebody has to do that. So so I, at a, at a previous airline, not, not surf, but another one, one of my co-founders was the most intensely process oriented human I've ever met. And we could fight like cats and dogs. Like I, but we had intense trust and great communication and I loved him to death. And so that we could always fall back on that, but we would disagree vociferously about how to do things. But I also knew I was hiring a complementary skill set. I don't need more of me. I'm sufficient for the company, right? With what I've got. What I need are people who have skill sets that I don't. And so it's part of knowing not just like what you're good at, but what are the things you're not that they're bringing to the table? And so, so you can fill that gap, right? So I know, I, I knew at Surf, for instance, I'm not the most touchy-feely guy. I'd like to be more. I'd like to be the guy that you want to take a walk with when things are hard. And I can be that role, but my nature isn't to be the first one you're going to call on. But Reed Farnsworth, my co-founder at Surf, is that guy. People love to talk to him and, and he makes you feel great. And he's a fantastic human and he's super smart, right? So, so having him there when I was running things, like made everything better, right? He could smooth the wounds after a meeting where somebody got offended, right? Like, and so you got to find that See, because you can develop yeah. it, but there's, a, there's an element of like double down on what you're good at. So, and, and I believe that I'm, I like this, you know, Gallup strengths finder stuff. I'm, I'm a big fan of that philosophy in general. And I guess my question is, so like in my organization, my brother, Nick is the lawyer. Like you don't have to, you don't have to prompt him. He automatically knows what's wrong with whatever you said. Okay. My partner, John is always been like the dad of all the companies we've done together, the successes and the failures. Right. Yeah. And I'm like the, like, I don't know, energizer bunny or something. Right. Like the guy who just, I could like monologue straight for for two hours or whatever. My, my problem is I know that the employees like would really love attention from me and they seek approval and attention and stuff from me. And like my high performers, my people who kill it, you know, like 
I had this, you know, at our private equity fund, I'd hired this petroleum engineer from China. I was paying like 600 grand a year because he was killing it for us, right? Yeah, yeah. And like that guy felt the love. And I, you know, like I connect with him, like those elite performers, I just connect with so well and I think to call them and I, you know what I mean? And it's almost like the other 90% of the organization doesn't even exist in my brain. Like I, I feel so bad that I forgot they exist, you know? Yeah, I, I very much understand and can relate with where you're coming from. There, there's a place where the employee count is such, like you can only actively manage 400 relationships at once. So between family and church and whatever else you do, right? Like, and you got room for coworkers and employees, right? So there's a place where you get to beyond that and you're not going to have a direct great one-on-one relationship. You're not going to be the go-to. There's an intermediary now. You got a relationship with the manager as a relationship with them and that's fine. And that's, that's actually a hard place for a lot of people. A lot of people, businesses get stuck at exactly that spot because the, the CEO can't manage down further. But there's, uh, so, so I regularly went for walks. I, and, and by going for a walk, I, I would, my sort of one-on-ones with all the employees, I found that I was more focused on them when my body was engaged. So if I'm sitting one-on-one, like my mind's all over the place with my ADD, but if we were on a walk, I'm just listening and I'm letting them talk more. In an office setting, I'm, I'm like you, I'm going to monologue forever. So this gave them the opportunity to express things and things would come up, weird things. I, I, we hired a girl as a copywriter, took her for a walk and it was just like round the block, you know, like everybody knows what I'm doing, but and, and I'm like, so how is it? You just joined the organization. What do you think? And she's like, honestly, it's great, but it looks like a man cave in here. It looks like, like a guy decorated it. And I'm like, you know what? I probably decorated it. That's probably exactly what it is. <laughs> she's like, we just, I'm like, well, how would you fix it? And she's like, I don't know, put an accent wall and some painting, you know, something. And I'm like, okay, how much budget do you need? And I gave her 200 bucks. Right. And then like the, like three days later, she and her husband are in the office painting at nine o'clock at night one night. And the rest of the time she worked there, like she, she painted that wall. Like it was this, she did this and every, it looked better. The office was better because, but it came up on, on one of these silly walks. So those walks do a lot to say like, you matter to me. And at least that's, that's a tool that worked for me. And you, you got to just find what that tool is, but mostly it's about letting them feel heard and not being, because you're the extrovert, yeah. right? So, I have a tendency to talk over, right? It's, it's the don't talk over that matters. Yeah. I mean, my, my thought this time around was like at our real estate business of like, what if I, you know, like Warren Buffett's got 250,000, 350,000 employees, whatever, right? But yep. he's got 17 support staff at Kiwit Plaza in Omaha that support him. And then all those businesses have their own CEO and their own staff and he doesn't, he doesn't make appearances, Right. And so like, I, I've been thinking like the way we've set it up this time is like, I'm just the chairman. I'm going to stay home where I'm at at my home office and maybe have a support staff at, at my office. But like we hired somebody else to be the CEO this time. And that's kind of my thought of like, well, if I'm not even in the office and he's the CEO, then maybe people aren't offended that I'm not spending a whole bunch of time with him. So, so um, I consider that role. So I'm a very external facing CEO. The stuff I'm good at is that like external facing stuff, handling the press and, you know, managing out. I have to pair up with a strongly internally focused COO, which is kind of the same structure you've got. You just, you already broke it up differently, but that's okay. Right. And the COO can make you feel validated and do those things. CEO still carries an element of like Donald Rumsfeld used to like have these snowflakes, like send you notes said great job. Right. It was like on a post-it. Right. But when it trickles its way down to you in the department of defense, that's a good day. Right. And so I've never met Donald Rumsfeld, but like I worked for him in theory for a couple of years and like you get a little snowflake, even if it's not, you did a good job. It's like, he asked a question on it. You're like, Oh, my stuff made it all the way up to the secretary. Right. So there's something in still having the, the title and the gravitas that I find valuable because it gives you the option to be extra, to be that surprising, right? It's not systemic. It's not like formula, like it's your turn, you know, but like, Hey, I can, I can come there. And that's my way of supporting the COO who's managing that relationship all day, every day. 
so, so that's that can be a piece of it as well. That, so in your, in your role, like the me, chairman comes because, in. You know. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because I think about like the EOS, you know, visionary implementer integrator roles or, yeah. you know, CEO, COO, chairman, CEO. Like, I guess other people have been through this before. <laughs> that's what I'm hearing. It makes um, sense though. Yeah, like it's, it's a, look, it's a known problem, right? Like people like you and me, we, it turns out we're going to overlap on that personality matrix pretty well are going to, are going to face that. I, I do, I find some joy in doing it. In particular, I like to be a giver of good gifts. And so I find a, I find that like a gift card to be like, like I just farmed out the gift. I couldn't think of anything for you. So here's cash, go get what you want. Right. I don't, I, I don't, it's not that I don't receive it well. But I'm like, oh, okay, phoned it in. Got it. I know what happened. Whereas if somebody gave me something that was like special to me, unique to me, they thought about me, whatever, it means a ton. So uh, that's one tool I used. I once gave, uh, we, we closed around to financing. So my attorney co-founder, Corey, and my finance co-founder, Reed, both are going to get a bonus for this. I gave Corey a stand-up paddleboard. I brought it into the office. It's like eight feet long. You know, it's a big deal, right? I gave Reed a trip with Utah Jazz basketball players in Mexico. It cost the same thing, right? But I could have given them cash. Corey, in fact, took the gift back for cash at REI, right? Like, fine. I'm not offended at that. But I, but when he received it, he knew I thought about him. He goes spearfishing. He likes to do this. Like, okay, it was personalized to him. Reed, like, still remembers it. It was a great trip. Like, loved it. Like, it was the right gift for him. One of them gave me a, like, a, a shoulder messenger bag that I still use to this day, right? Like, and I love it. And it meant a lot to me that it came from. That, that personalization piece is hard because you have to take the time. And I'm not, like, so the calendar will get away from me. I won't remember your birthday. I won't remember, like, I got stuff I'm doing all day, every day. But an admin assistant can be critical in this role of reminding you there's something special coming and you need to think about this person. Right. And you could outsource. I, I need you to think of something special for Tony. Right. And they'll show bring you three options or he'll bring you three options. Right. And you can pick one. That's a fine way to do it. So you can you can actually hire somebody whose job is to make you better at this function. Right. In, in some way. That's a great um, idea. Or, That's you seriously can, great. or you can build a system in. So I, I had a lesson early on where someone came into Surfair and they said, he said, these are our core values. And safety was the first one because it's an airline. Right? And uh, safety is not your primary value. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, pull up your calendar. And so I open my calendar. Goes, is this a safety meeting? No. Is this a safety meeting? No. Is this a safety meeting? Yeah. Safety is not your first priority. Is this a money meeting? Is this a finance meeting? Is this a sales meeting? I can tell you what your first priority is, right? And it was really interesting to think of auditing your calendar. And so if you want to be better at this function, put a block of time in your calendar where this is what you do. So if if Fridays from two to four every week, your job was figure out how to care for someone in the organization, you'll find ways and things, right? But you had to put time in. You had to figure it yeah. out. And, and, and you won't if you don't calendar it, it will not happen. Right. No, the assistant thing makes the most sense to me because my assistant's like is great. And having like getting her to tell me, okay, you've got time in your calendar because we have to do this. Like I would totally do what she said and we could knock it out. But like you said, I'm not going to remember to do that. It almost needs to, I almost need to like assign her to drive it for me, you know? Yeah. Which, which works. Right. I I, I need to be, I need to be more thoughtful in my life and I need you to help me do that. Right. Like that, that's a fine task. Uh, Yeah. Well, listen, I know we're over time here. Appreciate all the time you gave. Anything you want to end with here? No, yeah, I hope I hope it's useful to whoever listens to it. I always say that my advice is worth the same thing you paid for it. So, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I hope it's useful to somebody. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way? Contact form on, on uh, degreeinsurance.co or through oh, LinkedIn or what's... Yeah, wade at degreeinsurance.co is easy. That's my email and I'm happy to share it. LinkedIn's another easy one. My name is almost all vowels, so it's pretty easy to find me. It makes me eminently Googleable in this day and age, so... Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Jess. Yeah. Bye, everyone.